0: This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.
1: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
2: If sometime you should read that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead, don't believe a word of it.
3: Every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon is preached by D.L. Moody, and it's known as the 91st Psalm. It was the last sermon that he preached in Northfield, Massachusetts, his home.
1: Joel, we have talked about the amazing life of D.L. Moody before. He was one of those people who had a background you couldn't begin to contain in just a single episode. Uh, But just as a reminder, he preached to soldiers in the Union during the Civil War. Uh, Charles Spurgeon helped him get started in his preaching career, as well as Andrew A. Banar. And D.L. Moody was a world-famous evangelist who, among other things, started the famous and still running to this day Moody Bible College.
3: Yeah, yeah. But today we're going to be focusing mainly at the end of his life, specifically his final appearances in public preaching. In a lot of the sermons that we cover here on the show, including our last sermon that we did on John Bunyan, we look at the the kind of final moments of their life, those final words of wisdom. Uh, There's something kind of inspiring about someone's last words. You know, what kind of wisdom do they have to embark on us uh, that remain? this, This shows a lot about looking back on the past and looking back on people. And, you know, from the future, looking back at that, we have that, that perfect hindsight. We can see their entire life from where they started to where they finished. So that's something we, we kind of love to see people at the end of their life because they can look back and kind of gain on that knowledge of what that entire experience was like throughout their life. But from what we can tell about D.L. Moody's life, uh, he had no idea that this was going to be the last time he ever preached.
1: Now, to clarify any confusion, because there's going to be a little bit of confusion here, this sermon episode is named after the 91st Psalm. It's the last one he preached in his hometown of Northfield, Massachusetts. But for the sake of the background information, what we're focusing on is the last sermon that he ever actually preached, which is uh, in Kansas City. It's in the heart of Kansas City, and it was preached in 1899. In November 12, 1899, he began this campaign there that was supposed to last a week, Uh, But like so many others um, of these kind of campaigns that he did, I always ask myself, you know, if I was going around traveling and preaching and stuff like that, would they ever start to feel routine? Would you ever be like, okay, here I go, I'm gonna go. You know, I don't know, when you show up to work, sometimes sometimes your heart is in it, you're really excited about what you're doing. But other times, right, you kind of feel like, okay, I'm just going through the motions, I'm waiting for holiday, I'm just looking forward to getting off tonight, whatever it is. And I wondered that about him in this case, but I think... If there was ever a time where he was not feeling routine, it might've been this instance in Kansas City because there was so uh, much going on that brought him to this point, I think was really special, something different. For example, when it was announced that people had invited him to come and they accepted him to come, Pre- people from all over the city poured in. Pre- people from the Presbyterians, Methodists, Episcopalians, Congregationalists, the Christian churches, the Baptists, Southern Baptists, and pretty much every different church brought ministers together and said, we want to help uh, with this campaign to bring D.L. Moody to Kansas City. And that's that alone is just a yeah. rare thing where everybody from these different denominations is going to come together on one thing and say, right. we want this to happen.
3: Yeah, people from all over the Kansas City area came to support it. There were several businesses in the area that pledged to pay for the convention hall rental fees, so the entire meeting was paid for before he even arrived. He spoke in a nearly brand new convention hall, and it could seat fifteen to 20,000 people, and it would be filled to capacity during these meetings. It was said that some of the biggest crowds he ever had were during these last final meetings he had in Kansas City. After the 20,000 capacity auditorium was full. It overflowed into a second site, uh, kind of an overflow meeting area. And that meeting area also overflowed as well. So we're talking several tens of thousands of people were coming out to see
1: Dale Moody. And tens of thousands of people coming out today is a big deal, right? If you have... Uh, You know, right now there's a presidential campaign going on. There's 10,000 people shows up at a rally. That's a pretty big deal. These people are coming out to hear an evangelist. They're coming out to hear the word of God. I try not to forget when I talk about these numbers like that. And in our day, when we have an overflow room, what would happen is we would kind of connect the video feed and you would be seeing the service, but you would be just in a different room watching the video feed. But back in their day, what it meant was basically D.L. Moody would get up and he would preach this huge big service. And then he goes over to this overflow room where he has a huge other second crowd waiting for him. And he does this pretty much the same service over again. So it's really just a second service version, but in a different building, a different room. And they said they were turning people away. And we say this pretty much every time on the show, but... You know, I think it's super important. Imagine being in those crowds. It's 1899. You don't have a heater. You don't have a radio. There's, again, no video feed. Uh, the kids, nothing to entertain them is going on. Um, you're there in the cold coming to see somebody talk about Jesus, and we hear those kind of numbers and we just forget that each of those people had to make time to go there, right? Like how many of us make time or oh, you know, it's snowing, church is gonna be kinda of rough, I don't know, or I'm feeling a little sick, but, you know with this and that, it's cold. I just always try to remind myself that these are twenty thousand different people. And people were coming to Christ at these meetings by pretty big numbers. Uh, one particular, though, just to get to that individual, was there was this businessman who came forward in one of the after meetings, so in the overflow services, and he was one of the most prominent businessmen in Kansas City. And he comes up in front of everybody and just basically says, you know what, I'm not a Christian, but I wanna be one now. And because of this one businessman, and we and there were many others, but just because of this one guy, there are many people who like were talking and I was researching and said, I can trace my conversion, not back to D.L. Moody, but back to this businessman who came up in front of this huge crowd and said, I'm here to accept Christ. So there are these cool little individualized moments happening around this big story. So Deal Moody's here in
3: Kansas City, and he's preaching through these special meetings. And I kinda kinda gonna go through a timeline here. On Wednesday, people could see he was a bit different. And he told the people uh, that he couldn't go out and travel. He kinda had plans to go and look at uh, some sites in the city, Um, but he said he needed to rest. And so he didn't go out on Wednesday night. Doing two meetings a night, I mean, even for a normal person, is pretty exhausting. I'm yep. sure, but um, that was kind of strange for Moody to, you know, to see that wear him out in that way. That night, as he preached, instead of a strong and confident minister, they saw a man that was—he was sweating a lot. He, his face was red. Um, he was taking very long pauses in between his sermon bits, which again was not normal for Dale Moody. That was that was abnormal to him. Thursday, so the following day he preached what, what would be his, his last sermon. They took him around the city after that to try to get his spirits up, try to get his energy up, uh, but he came back and for the first time, he's even quoted as saying, for the first time in 40 years, I think I'll have to give up my meetings, saying he couldn't, he couldn't preach that night. And, that, and that's just because his health
1: was diminishing so fast. The doctor says, hey, he's got to go back to Northfield um, at once. There was no room for him on any train though and uh so there was this organization this Baptist organization said hey you can use our rail car we'd be happy to give you um space on this train to get him home as quickly as possible and there's this one kind of famous final story of him leaving kansas city and he has to make a connection it's kind of like in our day, you know, okay, I'm going to take an airplane to Atlanta, but I got to make sure I don't miss my flight from there to Chicago or wherever. And that you know, the time has to line up. And it's a very similar thing in the trains day where basically if this rail car doesn't get detached from one train and reattached to another train, they're going to miss the junction. It'll be, you know, another 24 hours or however long before another train is headed that way to get connected. So it's looking like he's definitely going to miss this connection that would get him home. Really quickly, within about you know twelve hour turnaround, and there's nothing they can do. They do, however, uh, tell the train engineer, "Hey, we have a sick person on board," and the train engineer is like, "Oh, you know who is it? We're, we'll do the best we can." The the guy finds out it's D.L. Moody, and he sends word back, "Oh, don't worry, you got a friend up here. I'm gonna get you there on time." And it ends up being the fastest recorded, recorded like on the record of that route from Kansas City. I don't, I don't know what town it was to that other place. It is flying down, you know, the tracks, which is dangerous. By the way, back in those days, trains did capsize sometimes. But he is busting to get them there. When uh, Moody wakes up and he goes, like, "How did I, you know, how did we get on? I thought we were gonna miss that junction for sure." And they find out, like, "Oh, that engineer who busted the records to get you there, he had gotten saved at a revival meeting 15 years before." and when he found out that D.L. Moody, the guy he had preached to and you know, t- turned his life around because of hearing him preach, was on, he had to make sure that he did whatever he could to help him out. So he gets to Northfield. He'll end up being there for about a month. He's pretty much ill the whole time. He's not able to do any kind of public ministry and he'll die about a month later. And we spent a lot of time in the story talking really about one week of his life and really hammering on. And if you haven't listened to DL Moody's earlier the earlier episode, that'll give you more of a general overview of DL Moody in case you haven't uh, haven't heard that yet. But we really focused in because honestly this story is really positive we often talk a lot about bleak stuff there's jails there's terrible plagues there's wars there's persecution out the wazoo and that's history that's how it goes for these ministers we're happy to do this but in this story i saw a minister preaching until he couldn't stand until he was pretty much out of breath a city that got all these ministers together to lay out the welcome mat and pave the way people Coming to Christ until the very end, and this you know, making a profound generational impact. Uh, people showing their beloved appreciation of several of a faithful servant in just everyday ways, between being given up a rail car to, uh, you know, driving there as fast as he could. These little things were ways to say, hey, I, you know, I love this guy. We're going to take care of this guy. Um, and it was just something cool to see you know his death you know shocked and sad in the world i believe he was only 62 when he died he was not super old and yet at the same time his life still influences to this day you know 120 years later because of things like moody bible college and all the stuff that he did in that time but his final sermon he seemed by the very end we you know we said at the beginning he didn't know he was going to die at the very end though he did seem to have a little bit of an inkling that something was going wrong um and in kansas city on that cold thursday morning in front of a giant cra- thursday morning sorry in the cold thursday meeting before this giant crowd he says look i am not old i'm only an infant compared with the ages that will roll over me when i am gone those who live in christ will live forever the glory is not past but it's to come and I think that's something profound. That you don't see, uh, it's just beautiful to see how he ends his ministry in just such a gentle, trusting way. Those are some of the final words he ever spoke in public ministry, just acknowledging that, like, this is short where we are doing here on earth, and heaven is long. You know, I, I may seem old, I'm on my deathbed here, but no, I'm actually an infant, and my life is going to be so much longer, and it's getting ready to start here in a minute. We have. Uh, Something pretty exciting and a a, a rare occasion to be on location at the former convention hall. So this is it, huh? Yeah, this is it.
0: Right after this break.
1: This is the actual location, and it is very cold.
0: This week on The Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism.
1: We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis, but also I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be.
0: Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.
3: So this is it, huh?
1: Yeah, this is it. This is the actual location and it is very cold today. And there's snow on the ground, but we're here at the actual spot where he would have been, and it is outdoors, and it is uh, not at all like it would have been.
3: No, no, now it's a, a park. There's a. It's actually a park on top of a parking garage that's
1: underground. Yeah. But it's 100, hard- 100 years ago, there was a, a convention hall here. 120 years ago, and it's funny because we can actually see where they built the second convention hall right next door and then the third convention hall right next to that and apparently there's works for a fourth convention hall in the works so (laughs) you can just see the progression of convention halls from one to the other Um, but we're outdoors in the middle of kansas city now and it is a pretty pretty cold day and there's no one else around just us here Um, there's no signs or memorials there's no evidence that he was ever actually here either
3: you know, I'm thinking back to Kansas City in 1899, and you know, the spot is a pretty great spot. It's it's less than a mile from the river. It's less than a mile from the train station. Like it is, a, it is a good central hub, and I can imagine it being quite packed back in the day.
1: Yeah. So I mentioned there's no signs, there's no, um, there's no evidence that D.L. Moody was ever here, let alone that this was the last place that he would have ever publicly preached or done ministry. It's it reminds me of a story. When we first did our very first episode, I was doing research on George Mueller, and the guy who, uh, he there was this guy who went to George Mueller's orphanage, like it's now a school, and he went there, visited there, and he said, hey, I'm here to, you know, see anything you have about George Mueller, and the attendant kind of laughs and kind of, oh, okay. She goes away, comes back like 10 minutes later with just a cardboard box and like a couple journals and books, and it was like, here's everything we have. You can go look through it at a table, and It was incredible, this person, George Mueller, who had helped 10,000 orphans, 10,000, just done all these amazing things, changed missions forever. All that was remembered of him was just a cardboard box, right? Like he just is kind of forgotten and he was pushed aside and even his own orphanage is not thinking about him anymore. When I look at this last place of D.L. Moody, it's the same thing I think about. There's no evidence that he was ever here. There's no evidence as I look around that there was once 10 to 15, maybe 20,000 people packed in here, souls getting saved as he preached his heart out in his last campaign, but it happened. Right? And that's kind of what Revive Thoughts is all about, is remembering the sermons and remembering the preachers, remembering God's you know, chosen leaders who were sent to save souls. How many lives must have been impacted by his campaigns, by this campaign in particular? It must have been so many people whose lives are changed, yet you don't see it. The world has forgotten. There's no mementos, there's no signs, there's nothing here to show it. And yet, I definitely believe God remembers. I definitely believe that in heaven, this spot, maybe you won't have a sign to him because we're gonna be all talking about Jesus, but God remembers what was done here. And even though the things we do 120 years, maybe no one will even know we were ever there or had done it, God will definitely remember our work. And those souls and those people who were changed forever, they will be remembered. The historians and the world may forget, but God, he knows what happened here on this day, 120 years ago. And I think it's important that we as Christians do everything we can to remember that too. In this episode that we're about to
3: listen to, in this sermon that we're about to listen to, it's all about the 91st Psalm. And again, this is the last sermon that he preached at his home in Northfield, Massachusetts. The last sermon that he preached there before leaving on this tour, where he would eventually end up on this spot, uh, preaching his very last sermon. But the sermon that he preached at the end of his preaching time in Northfield, Massachusetts, was all about the 91st Psalm. And you can tell that th- this was one of his favorite psalms. And people definitely knew that he was a, a fan favorite of the 91st Psalm. He has this thought, and you'll, you'll hear it in the sermon, that it was written after th- when the children were freed from Egypt. And there are several I will statements throughout this psalm. So as, you, as you're listening, as you're going through to it, you'll listen, you know, the narrator will mention uh, these kind of breaks, almost like an outline. This is the next I will statement. This is what God is communicating one after another. So listen to every, every time that he's saying I will this and I will that, he's, he's referencing back to a moment in that psalm where God is making promises to his people.
2: This psalm might have been written by Moses after some terrible calamity had come upon the children of Israel. It might have been after that terrible night of death in Egypt, when the firstborn from the palace to the hut were slain, or after that terrible plague of fiery serpents in the wilderness, when the people were full of fear and in a nervous state. In the western states, where they have terrible cyclones, the people, old and young, get very nervous. And whenever they see a cloud coming up, they are alarmed. I was in Iowa some time ago, after they had had in that state seven cyclones, one after another. They had been all around the city that I was in, and if a storm came up and the black clouds began to gather, the whole city was just a trembling. Perhaps Moses called Aaron and Miriam. And Joshua and Caleb and a few others into his tent and read this psalm to them first. How sweet it must have sounded and how strange. I can imagine Moses asking, do you think that will help them? Do you think that will quiet them? And they all thought that it would. And then, it may be, on one of those hilltops of Sinai at twilight, this psalm was read. How it must have soothed them how it must have helped them, how it must have strengthened them. You will notice in the last two verses, there are seven things that God told Moses he would do. Seven I wills. If they could get burned down into our souls, it would be a help to us all through life. When God says he will do a thing, there is no power on earth or in perdition that can keep him from doing that which he has promised to do. First, I will deliver. When God called Moses to go down into Egypt to deliver the children of Israel from the hand of the Egyptians, in all the world there wasn't a man who, humanly speaking, was less qualified than Moses. He had made the attempt once before to deliver the children of Israel, and he began by delivering one man, He failed in that and killed an Egyptian and had to run off into the desert and stay there 40 years. He had tried to deliver the Hebrews in his own way. He was working in his own strength and doing it in the energy of the flesh. He had all the wisdom of the Egyptians, but that didn't help him. He had to be taken back into Horeb and kept there 40 years in the school of God before God would trust him to deliver the children of Israel in God's way. Then God came to him and said, I am come down to deliver. And when God worked through Moses, three million were delivered as easy as I can turn my hand over. God could do it. It was no trouble when God came on the scene, learned that lesson, If we want to be delivered from every inward and outward foe, we must look to a higher source than ourselves. We cannot do it in our own strength. We all have some weak point in our character. When we would go forward, it drags us back. And when we would rise up into higher spheres of usefulness and the atmosphere of heaven, something drags us down. Now, I have no sympathy with the idea that God puts us under the blood and saves us and then leaves us in Egypt to be under the old taskmaster. I believe God brings us out of Egypt into the promised land and that it is the privilege of every child of God to be delivered from every foe, from every besetting sin, If there is some sin that is getting the mastery over you, you certainly cannot be useful. You certainly cannot bring forth fruit to the honor and glory of God until you get self-control. He that rules his spirit is better than he that takes a city. If we haven't got victory over jealousy, over envy, over self-seeking and covetousness and worldly amusements and worldly pleasure— If we are not delivered from all these things, we are not going to have power with God or with men. And we are not going to be as useful as we might be if we got the deliverance from every evil. There isn't an evil within or without, but what He will deliver us from if we will let Him. That is what He wants to do. As God said to Moses, I am come down to deliver. If he could deliver three million slaves from the hands of the mightiest monarch on earth, don't you think he can deliver us from every besetting sin and give us complete victory over ourselves, over our temper, over our dispositions, over our irritableness and peevishness and snappishness? If we want it and desire it above everything else, we can get victory. People are apt to think that these little things, as we call them, are weaknesses that we are not responsible for, that they are misfortunes, that we inherited them. I have heard people talk about their temper, and they say, well, I inherited it from my father and mother. They were quick-tempered, and I got it from them. Well, that is a poor place to hide, my friend. Grace ought to deliver us from all those things. A lady came to me some time ago and said that she had great trouble with her temper now and she was more irritable than she was five years ago and she wanted to know if I didn't think it was wrong. I said, I should think you are backsliding. If you haven't better control over yourself now than you had five years ago, there is something radically wrong. Well, said she, I should like to know how I am going to mend it. Can you tell me? Yes. How? I said, when you get angry with people and give them a good scolding, go right to them after you have made up your mind that you have done wrong and tell them you have sinned and ask them to forgive you. She said she wouldn't like to do that. Of course she wouldn't. But she will never get victory until she treats it as sin. Don't look upon it as weakness or misfortune, but sin. No child of God ought to lose control of temper without confessing it. A lady came to me some time ago and said that she had got so in the habit of exaggerating that people accused her of misrepresentation. She wanted to know if there was any way that she could overcome it. Certainly, I said. How? Next time you catch yourself at it, go right to the party and tell them you lied. Oh, said she. I wouldn't like to call it lying. Of course not. But a lie is a lie all the same. And you will never overcome those sins until you treat them as sins and get them out of your nature. If you want to shine in the light of God and be useful, you must overcome. You must be delivered. And that is what God says he will do. He will deliver. Now the next, I will. He will come upon me and I will answer him. There's a chance for all of us to call. The great God that made heaven and earth has promised, I will answer him. If you call on God for deliverance and for victory over sin and every evil, God isn't going to turn a deaf ear to your call. I don't care how black your life has been, I don't care what your past record has been. I don't care how disobedient you have been. I don't care how you have backslidden and wandered. If you really want to come back, God accepts the willing mind. God will hear your prayer and answer. Listen to the prodigal. Father, I have sinned. That was enough. The father took him right into his bosom. The past was blotted out at once. Look at the man on the day of Pentecost. Their hands were dripping with blood, the blood of the Son of God. They had murdered Jesus Christ. And what did Peter say to them? It will come to pass that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look at the penitent thief. It might have been that when he was a little boy, his mother taught him that same passage in Joel. It will come to pass that whosoever will call On the name of the Lord will be saved. As he hung there on the cross, it flashed into his mind that this was the Lord of glory. And though he was on the very borders of hell, he cried out, Lord, remember me. And the answer came right then and there Today you will be with me in paradise. In the morning, associated with thieves, in the evening, associated with the purest of heaven. In the morning, cursing. Matthew and Mark both tell us that those two thieves came out cursing. In the evening, uplifted on high, an inhabitant of heaven. In the morning, as black as hell could make him. In the evening, not a spot or wrinkle. Why? Because he took God at his word. My dear friend, if you are unsaved, You just call upon God now and here is a promise. I will answer him. A few years ago, an old returned missionary went to one of our leading hospitals to have a surgical operation performed. He was to go under ether and it was doubtful whether he would come out or not. He might wake up in another world. He bade adieu to his friends, gave them his farewell blessing. He was a very godly man. And when the doctor said, Well, we are ready, he faced them. And with a calm look, he said, Would you just wait a minute? And then he lifted his voice in prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Then, opening his eyes, he said, Doctor, I am ready. And passed under the knife and out from under it into health. My dear friends, it is a sweet privilege to pray. It is a sweet privilege to be in touch with heaven, to be in communion with the great God that made heaven and earth. I will answer him. I suppose there isn't a Christian in this audience but can say amen to that. You can say God has answered in the past and you believe he will do so again. Some people say they can't call. Perhaps you cannot make an eloquent prayer. I hope you can't. I have heard about all the eloquent prayers I want to. But you can say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Only be sincere, and God will hear your cry. Mark you, there is a sham cry. Mothers understand that. They know when their children cry in earnest or whether it is a sham cry. Let the child give a real cry of distress, and the mother will leave everything and fly to her child. I have been 40 years in Christian work, and I have never known God to disappoint any man or woman who is in earnest about their soul's salvation. I know lots of people who pretend to be in earnest, but their prayers are never answered. I will be with him in trouble. Every heart knows its own bitterness. If the troubles that are represented by this audience could be written in a volume, it would take the biggest volume you have ever seen. We are apt to think there is one thing they can make sure of that they are going to have trouble later. Man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. Trouble is coming, no one is exempt. God has had one son without sin, but he has never had one without sorrow. Jesus Christ, our master, suffered as few men ever suffered, and he died very young. Ours is a path of sorrow and suffering, and it is so sweet to hear the master say, I will be with him in trouble. Don't let anyone think for a moment that you can get on without him. You may say now, I can get on, I am in good health and prosperity. But the hour is coming when you will need him. Many a Christian could bear witness to this point that he has been with them in trouble, that in some dark hour when the billows seemed to be rolling up around them, they cried to him and he heard their cry. He answered their prayer and he brought peace. There was joy in their sorrow. There was a star that lit up even the darkest night. I remember being on that vessel, the Spree, when the shaft broke and a hole was knocked in her bottom out in mid-ocean and the stern sank some 30 feet. All my family but one was in Northfield and I was making my way home leaving friends in Europe. There I was in mid-ocean, pulled up, as it were, to look into my own grave for about 48 hours without one ray of hope, humanly speaking. For 48 hours, the burden was intense. My heart was as a lump of lead. The accident happened Saturday morning. Sunday afternoon, we had a prayer meeting, and after prayer, I read this 91st Psalm. If it had been let down from heaven, it could not have given me more comfort. I went into my stateroom and I fell on my knees and I cried to the Lord. It is a time of trouble, help me. And God took the burden. It rolled off and I fell asleep. I have never slept sounder than I did that night and all the rest of the time. If a storm had burst on us any time during the week, we would have gone down. But God was with us in the time of trouble and the burden was lifted. A great many people seem to embalm their troubles. I always feel like running away when I see them coming. They bring out their old mummy and they tell you with a sass in their voice, you don't know the troubles that I have. My friends, if you go to the Lord with your troubles, he will take them away. Would you not rather be with the Lord and get rid of your troubles than be with your troubles and be without God? Let trouble come if it will drive us nearer to God. It is a great thing to have a place of resort in the time of trouble. How people get on without the God of the Bible is a mystery to me. If I don't have such a refuge, a place to go and pour out my heart to God in such times, I don't know what I would do. It seems as if I would go out of my mind. But to think when the heart is burdened, we can go and pour it into his ear and then have the answer come back, I will be with him, There is comfort in that. I thank God for the old book. I thank God for this old promise. It is as sweet and fresh today as it has ever been. Thank God none of those promises are out of date or grown stale. They are as fresh and vigorous and young and sweet as ever. I will honor him. God's honor is something worth seeking. Man's honor doesn't amount to much. Suppose Moses had stopped down there in Egypt. He would have been loaded down with Egyptian titles, but they would have never reached us. Suppose he had been chief marshal of the whole Egyptian army, General Moses, Commander Moses. Suppose he had reached the throne and become one of those pharaohs and his mummy had come down to our day. What is that compared with the honor that God put upon him? I will honor him. Didn't God put honor on Moses? How his name shines on the page of history? The honor of this world doesn't last. It is transient. It is passing away. And I don't believe any man or woman is fit for God's service that is looking for worldly preferment, worldly honors, and worldly fame. Let us get it under our feet, let us rise above it, and seek the honor that comes down from above. With long life I will satisfy him. I get a good deal of comfort out of that promise. I don't think that means a short life down here, seventy years, eighty years, ninety years, or a hundred years. Do you think that any man living would be satisfied if they could live to be 100 years old and then have to die? Not by a good deal. Suppose Adam had lived unto today and had to die tonight. Would he be satisfied? Not a bit of it. Not if he had lived a million years and then had to die. You know, we are all the time coming to the end of things here, the end of the week, the end of the month the end of the year, the end of school days. It is end, end, end all the time. But thank God he is going to satisfy us with long life, no end to it, an endless life. Life is very sweet. I never liked death, I like life. It would be a pretty dark world if death was eternal and when our loved ones die, we are to be eternally separated from them Thank God it is not so. We shall be reunited. It is just moving out of this house into a better one, stepping up higher and living on and on forever. There is a verse, probably you have never noticed it, that came to me with great sweetness some time ago. It is in the 21st Psalm, the fourth verse, He asked life of you, and you gave it to him, even length of days, forever and ever. Think of that. Length of days forever and ever. Do you think Moses is dead yet? He never lived as he does today. Never. And he is going to live on and on forever. What does Christ say? If a man keep my saying, he will never taste of death. Never. Don't you want to live forever? You can if you will. Eternal life is as free as the air that you and I take into our lungs. Verily, verily, I say to you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and will not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Yes, with long life I will satisfy him. Is there anyone here who hasn't got eternal life? I don't like to pass over this and leave anyone outside the kingdom. If you are not in, my friend, take my advice. Don't eat or drink or sleep until you get eternal life. Then this body may be taken away, but if it is, you will make something out of death. If our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not built with hands, eternal in the heavens. When a young man... I was called upon suddenly in Chicago to preach a funeral sermon. A good many Chicago businessmen were to be there and I said to myself, now, it will be a good chance for me to preach the gospel to those men and I will get one of Christ's funeral sermons. I hunted all through the four gospels trying to find one of Christ's funeral sermons, but I couldn't find any. I found he broke up every funeral he attended He never preached a funeral sermon in the world. Death couldn't exist where he was. When the dead heard his voice, they sprang to life. He will smash up the undertaking business when he comes to reign. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he will live. The 23rd Psalm is more misquoted than anything else in the whole Bible. It is known in all the Catholic churches. It is known in the Greek church. It is in the Jewish synagogue. They chant it in a great many denominations, burying the dead, and armies went to battle chanting the 23rd Psalm. And yet I believe it is more misquoted than anything in the Bible. People will weave it into their prayers and conversation and chapel services. They will say, Yea, though I walk through the dark valley. They will always emphasize the word dark and send the cold chills running down your back. Yea, though I walk through the dark valley of the shadow of death. I want to tell you, my dear friends, the word dark isn't there at all. The devil sticks that in there to confuse believers. It is, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What is the difference? Must not there be light where there is a shadow? Can you get a shadow without light? If you doubt it, go down into the cellar tonight with a light and find your shadow if you can. All that death can do to a true believer is to throw a shadow across his path. Shadows never hurt anyone. You can walk right through shadows as you can through fog and there is nothing to fear. I pity down deep in my heart any man or woman that lives under the bondage of death. If you are under it, may God bring you out today. May you come right out into the liberty of the blessed gospel of the Son of God. Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy death, and we can say with Paul, if we will, O death, where is thy sting? And we can hear a voice rolling down from heaven saying, Buried in the bosom of the Son of God. He took death into his bosom. He went into the grave to conquer and overthrow it. And when he arose from the dead, he said, Because I live, you will live. Thank God we have a long life with Christ in glory. My dear friends, if we are in Christ, we are never going to die. Do you believe that? If sometime you should read that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead, don't believe a word of it. He has gone up higher, that is all. Gone out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like God's own glorious body. Moses wouldn't have changed the body he had at the transfiguration for the body he had at Pisgah, Elijah wouldn't have changed the body he had at the transfiguration for the body he had under the juniper tree. They got better bodies, and I too am going to make something out of death. I will set him on high. God is able to do it. Up above the angels, up above the archangels, up above the cherubims and the seraphims, on the throne with his own son. We are called to be sons and daughters of the eternal God. Do you know the Prince of Wales cannot sit on the throne with Queen Victoria? They wouldn't allow it. The heir to the throne of Russia has just recently died, and they have appointed another to take his place, but he cannot sit on the throne with his brother, the Tsar. But it is not so yonder. Yonder. Christ has gone up and taken his seat at the right hand of the Father, and every son and daughter of God is to be lifted up onto the throne. My dear friends, think of the promise. Isn't it rich? Isn't it sweet? I will set him on high. So that when our friends pass up to be on high and to be forever with him, they are far better off. I will show him my salvation. That is a sweet promise. God can say to the angels, Hark to that man that was once down in the depths, down in the gutter, but now he is lifted up and set upon my throne with my son. Thank God for the riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. I believe we don't learn the fringe of the subject of salvation down here. When our master was on earth, he said he had many more things to say, but he could not reveal them to his disciples because they were not ready to receive them. But when we go yonder, where these mortal bodies have put on immortality, when our spiritual faculties are loosed from the thraldom of the flesh, I believe we will be able to take more in. God will lead us from glory to glory and show us the fullness of our salvation. Don't you think Moses knew more at the Mount of Transfiguration than he did at Pisgah? Didn't Christ talk with him then about the death he was to accomplish at Jerusalem? He couldn't have received this truth before, any more than the disciples. But when he had received his glorified body, Christ could show him everything.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode on D.L. Moody was narrated by John Godes. Please visit our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes.
1: If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts and learning about D.L. Moody and where he came from, the the final moments of his life and how just a whole city and a whole bunch of people came together to show his love, um, tell a friend, share it through a text message, Facebook Messenger, maybe tweet it out. Let someone know and say, hey, this is a pretty interesting uh, life that this guy lived and also a really great sermon. A lot of encouragement and conviction there. We, uh, we are, The show is growing and it's growing mostly through word of mouth and people just letting others know. If you don't mind like giving us five stars on iTunes or on Facebook, on our Facebook page, these reviews help a lot. It helps algorithms and things like that know to bump our show into people's feeds and give us as a suggestion. So that's why we asked for those we're just hoping that again it will encourage others to find us and if you are looking for something for Christmas well it might not get there Christmas time but everybody yeah. loves the Revive Thoughts t-shirt Joel is wearing it in our live stream right now and if you can't see it it looks great uh, everyone loves the, live, the Revive Thoughts t-shirt and or the Revive Thoughts coffee mug no better way to enjoy a beverage than to be thinking about the great theologians of the past make sure that you go to our store which you can find in the episode description and purchase one of those for yourself or for a friend or for a family member or for anybody else Thank you so much, and uh, we really appreciate you being here. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.
0: This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.